Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the many riches we find within your word. We thank you for the riches that have been opened up already to us this morning with the invitation to talk about how we have felt loved, to talk about your love, and to talk about the things for which we feel grateful. We pray, Lord, that we may hold these things before you, however significant or insignificant the thing that we shared seemed to be. And remember that all small things and great things in these areas come from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Right, I'm going to tell a joke now. This is a warning. And a second warning is that some of you may not understand it. My son sent this joke um, by WhatsApp to all of our family um, and amongst people of my age in the family and amongst people of my children's age in the family, there was a very small percentage understanding of the joke. This, um, the theme of today is go out and tell. You might need to explain this joke to your neighbour as you go out of the door later on, if you understand it. And if you don't understand it, you might think, that was pathetic, I don't want to know. Or you might think, well, three or four people laughed, I really do want to know. So then you'll be a disciple of this joke, and you'll be spreading the news about the joke. Discipleship is about hearing a thing about Jesus, understanding the things about Jesus, which only comes slowly, doesn't it? (laughs) Thinking about that question about love, I have felt loved by God at so many points in my life, so many hits, as it were. As Bob Dylan said, I need a shot of love, and I need that again and again and again. But every time I receive that shot of love, of hearing the good news about Jesus, or as I meditate, feeling his love for me once again, at a point when I've been thinking, how hopeless am I? Why have I done that all over again? And yet I feel God's love for me again. The testimony of the man who hung up on the cross because he cared for me and he cares for you. And every time I'm filled with a little bit of a sense of wonder. And when I have to start talking about it, I'm filled with tears, which are an expression of that wonder. And they're an expression of my own sense of complete unworthiness to receive anything. The other day in the men's group, we were talking about the church in Thessalonica and the first letter of Paul to that church. We sometimes think that Paul's letters are just preaching and just doctrine, but actually Paul's letters are telling the story of God's love and how it has spread out. And he's often telling people their story back to them to encourage them to grow in that love and to value and cherish, like the daffodils coming out of the earth at the moment and like the snowdrops that have been delighting us for weeks, to cherish that love afresh, that we too may have a fresh ability to proclaim that love and to work through all the difficulties that come because we say, I am found in Jesus. We say, I am Christ's. We say, I am a disciple. And sometimes... (laughs) My neighbour says to me, so what makes you a disciple, Stuart? 
In fact, once my neighbour told me off because when I retired, I was feeling so low and angry about so many things. I was often using quite bad language <laughs> when I was trying to get things done. And I was often being quite loud and using that bad language. And I'm ashamed to say it, but it's true, and I still do that every now and again. And he had a little word with me. And he said, Stuart, about the language. And I said, I know less. I said, I'm a Christian. I'm a retired vicar, but I'm still very imperfect. And every day I have to learn to trust God for his forgiveness of me and his changing of my life. Because unless he goes on changing it, I'm going to get worse, not better. I said that instead of making excuses about all the stress I'd been under. So here's the joke. A man... Uh, uh, actually, uh, uh, the, the picture I saw was of an Edwardian woman in, long, in a long dress with her back to the cartoonist. And facing her was a lady sitting at the desk who looked a bit Florence Nightingale-like and another lady standing beside her who looked a bit like a, 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 an Edwardian matron. The person with her back to us is having an interview. And the person asking the question says... Can you perform under pressure? And the lady with her back to us says, no, but I'm quite good at Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> right. <laughs> Watch the people laughing if you didn't get it and ask them, all right? Experience being discipled. <laughs> and then ask them, what is God's love for them like at the moment? And experience a bit more of being encouraged and discipled. It's so good. My son sent me that, and I feel discipled by it. One or two people in the family found out about Queen and the songs they sing as well, and they felt discipled by that. But that was encouraging to me. I've also been reading um, a couple of books by... One was a football manager who people around these parts would know quite well, Laurie McMenemy, and another is Eddie Jones, who is the rugby coach for England rugby at the moment and has coached I think four international sides now and uh, four or five teams that have been just local teams that have been big in world rugby. He's been a very successful coach. He hasn't always won and he says in the book, it really hurts me when I lose. He says in his book, when I, all the effort and work I put in and all the joy I got from rugby, I got to a point where the Australian coach said to me, Eddie, I'm not going to pick you this time. And he broke down, Eddie broke down in tears and said, I'm not going to be able to play for Australia. I won't be able to play an international test match for Australia ever if I'm not picked this time. And he said, I know, but you're not good enough. I think you'll make a good coach. And he has made a very good coach. But his, his strategy and his experience of life are, are kind of one and the same thing. He's experienced a lot of difficulties. He hates losing. My dad was a rugby coach and, and he hated it when his teams lost. He hated it when they drew. He wrote in his diary once um, um, that it was, a score, it was a, a score draw in a rugby match that went up to about 10 or 11 points. And underneath that he wrote, not good enough. The people who care about whatever they're doing suffer 
when it's not happening for them. And as Christians, we suffer when we see that the message isn't getting out. We suffer when we, when we find that uh, we've done things that block our friends' ears instead of opening them. We suffer when we see things on the news that shows a change in society's values. And we think, oh no, it's going to be even more difficult now. We're going to be even less listened to. We've just heard a gospel reading about, was it something like 2,000 pigs charging over a cliff and drowning? They're dead. 2,000 pigs that were supposed to be somebody's livelihood, all gone. 2,000 pigs that represent part of God's creation, lost forever. Unless you're a diver and you want to go looking for the bones. They're gone. In a week, this gospel reading comes up in a week when we hear about a controversy over a man kicking a cat. We're very sensitive about certain things. I wondered what would have happened if I'd been at college and said, I want to write my thesis on this passage. I wonder what would have happened when I was sent to the ethics committee to make sure I wrote stuff that was going to be acceptable in the academic marking schemes and I wasn't going to go nuts on something that was going to sound a bit gung-ho about what had happened to these pigs. Do you know what? I've read three or four commentaries on this, some of them very long and deep and big, and some of them very light and weight and simple. Nobody can explain why this happened. Some people say it's another story that was tacked on later. It, in other words, it didn't happen while Jesus was there. I don't believe that. I think this is a difficult story. And we have a difficult gospel to proclaim. It's not all love and joy and peace, although it's lovely to cuddle teddy bears. It's not that. It's not even Elton John glasses. Although I never really enjoyed those anyway. But we have a difficult time proclaiming the gospel, and we have a difficult gospel to proclaim. And when we try and make it easy, we're just delaying the point when it's going to get difficult. My neighbour made it easy for me to tell him the gospel. I said, it's not how good I am, it's how forgiven I am that makes me a Christian. It's not how hard I try, it's who's forgiven me that makes me a Christian. It's not that one day I hope my good works will get me to heaven. It's one day I hope when I'm standing in heaven, Jesus will fulfil his word and say, yeah, you did a lot of things that were wrong. And aren't you glad some people didn't know about it and start telling all your friends? <laughs> but I forgive you. You're in. You can come through. We've just sung about heaven's gates open wide. We've just sung about welcoming in our songs. This is the God who welcomes us, and he welcomes us in Jesus. So how did this guy get into this mess? Well, we don't know that. How did this guy meet Jesus? Well, we just heard about that. Earlier in Luke, just in the same chapter, in fact, Jesus had been on the other side of the lake, the opposite side of the lake, in the area of um, Israel that is called Galilee, the land area that's called Galilee. There's, there's Lower Galilee and Upper Galilee. He was in Lower Galilee, probably, when he got into the boat. The last things we were told about him put him in Lower Galilee, or possibly even further south in Judea, just north of Jerusalem. 
Judea is a general term that can apply to the whole area, not necessarily to that specific area where the tribe of Judah lived. So we can't be sure about geographical details. But if I can turn my back on you, and I don't like doing this because my ball patch shows up really badly on the cameras, but I'm, sac I'm making this sacrifice because I love you, okay? <laughs> There's Israel. Here's Lake Galilee. This is the other side. And this bit of the other side up here was called Decapolis. It was where the half-tribe of Manasseh had been living, and at the time that Jesus went across the lake in the boat, it was in, in effect, Gentile jurisdiction. It wasn't necessarily considered as kosher. And if you know anything about Jewish meal rituals, you know that having pigs and raising pigs is definitely not kosher. Technically, that's the right term for it. So, how are the disciples behaving under pressure? How are Eddie Jones's international sides behaving under pressure? How is Jesus discipling people? Well, Luke's gospel keeps telling us about ways the disciples are under pressure, but we don't notice it because, quite rightly, Luke's main focus is on Jesus. And when we're under pressure, that's a lesson for us as well, isn't it? Quite rightly, our main focus should be on Jesus. Oh, my life is falling apart and it's my fault. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Oh, I'm facing a difficult exam. I've got to go to an interview. What balmy questions are they going to ask me? And will I give stupid answers or good ones? Well, I can perform Bohemian Rhapsody. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. In the nano experiences of anxiety, turn your eyes upon Jesus. In the macro experiences, the cosmic experiences, the world turning upside down experiences of anxiety, the stuff you thought you'd never ever get through. I thought it was great when Bishop Debbie was here and she was preaching on this passage about crossing the lake and the greatness of God. I wasn't sure I got a lot exegetical from her sermon, but what I really got from her sermon was that she said in a very gentle and non-over-the-top way, a very understated way, since the Bishop of Winchester has had to stand down, we've had a very tumultuous time, and I've been going through that with my colleagues, and I'm, I'm learning about the greatness of God when the storm is raging. That was her testimony from that passage. And I thought, bless you. Of course, her other lovely testimony was talking to that, that lad who said to her, tell me, why do you love Jesus? And she said, quick as a flash. Well, she did a little um. <laughs> and she decided to go for the simple one. Because he first loved me. If you think you're a disciple because you've been brought up in church and you're making every effort to be as good a disciple as all those words you've heard would encourage you to be, that's the wrong answer. <laughs> if there is nothing in your experience that says, because he first loved me, and it's in here, and in here, as well as in here, you've still got all that rough time of being a disciple to come. You need to cry out to Jesus. 
to deliver you of your blindness to what the gospel is truly about and what he can do in your life and to put your roots deeper into him so that you may bloom and flourish like a disciple in the wind. This is an amazing passage. There's so much you could say about it. And I'm not going to just keep going and going. But the disciples arise there after going through a storm. How do you perform under pressure? Eddie Jones says, I continually try to upset and disturb the rugby teams that I've got in front of me, the rugby squads that I'm training. I'm thinking about three or four years on. So I'm sometimes putting people aside who are still good players because I want to bring in the new players. That upsets and disturbs the team. But if they're going to perform on the pitch, they need to learn how to cope with that. They need to learn how to support each other in that. They need to learn how to keep adapting to the new situations. The Gospel of Luke tells us how Jesus' disciples were having to do that over and over again. Oh, good. We've reached the shore. <laughs> we could step out onto form ground. We could stop being tossed around. We can sit down and have a picnic with Jesus and look across the lovely Sea of Galilee. And then we can get back in the boat and go back to the area of the land area of Galilee. Uh-oh, who's this bloke coming down the hill? He looks a bit nuts. Should we, should we try and take Jesus off somewhere so that we don't have to deal with this? What's he doing? It doesn't even say there that Jesus went to meet the bloke. It says the, met, the bloke met Jesus. The bloke met Jesus. But why had Jesus crossed the lake? Do you know? Does it tell you anywhere? Jesus said, we're going to the other side. <laughs> he knew he had to be on the other side. Did he know why? Was it just that in his prayer time that morning, his father had said, get in a boat, get across to the other side. And when he got there, he found out. Or in his prayer time, had he seen a vision of this man who was locked up in bondage, not just the chains that the people tried to put on him, but in chains to this inner torment, in chains to his inner demons, which actually were real demons. In 2 Peter chapter 2, it talks about angels being cast, the rebellious angels being cast into the darkest part of hell and, and the darkest place. And in this story, the demons, for goodness sake, it's the only place in Luke where Jesus has a conversation with anything like that. Say, please don't send us into the abyss. They were frightened of that darkest place. And we should be frightened of going there too. If you're not turning your eyes upon Jesus, if you're not a disciple in that sense, that threat, according to the scriptures, is an encouragement for you to think again. Where are you placing your trust? And Jesus starts a conversation, and we can't always follow it in the way Luke describes it, of whether the man who prostrates himself at Jesus' feet, that's the word in Greek, it's a, it's a, it's a word that's also used for worship, but it's, it's a word that's used in the other Gospels as well. 
and some of the writers hold back from using that word in case it's confused with worship, that the demons were somehow able to worship. But we can't understand what's happening. Whether it's, what's the, the man must have wanted to meet Jesus because the demons certainly didn't seem to want to. And yet Jesus is talking with the demons. The demons are making the man shout. So it's hard to discern what is of the man and what is of the demonic here. It's hard to work it out. I've read this over and over again since I heard that this was the passage I was doing today and I still can't work out exactly where to say that's the man, that's the demons. But Jesus was there for the man. He didn't go there to put the demons into the pigs so they could go over the hill. He didn't go there for the spectacular stuff. That just proves that the demons left the man and the people had something to talk about. So they then had to ask the man, what was this all about? They had to understand. They had to have one-to-ones. It shows the power of God and it shows just how messed up this guy's life had been by these demons. Legion, that's an awful lot of Roman soldiers and they too were cruel occupiers. Anyway, we hear that the man often has no clothes on. We hear that he lives in a disgusting place amongst the pigs and amongst the tombs. That is not a normal place to go to sleep. We hear that he's not in his right mind. He's really messed up. Jesus is there for him. And Jesus came for you and for me because we're messed up too, although not necessarily in the same way as that man. But we are messed up. Chris said it the other week. The paralysed man needed to be forgiven before anything real could happen in his life. But to show that Jesus can forgive sins, get up and walk. To show that you're a disciple, walk in God's ways. And then at the end of the story, as the story's starting to wind down, which my sermon should also be doing by now, I could simply flick to the right page. We get a little bit where we hear those tending the pigs saw what had happened. They ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. The names that were used for this place could well be a particular town, although there's no evidence that a town of that name was anywhere near enough for the sea to this be the story about it. If the people went back to the town and ran back again, they'd probably done something like possibly 30 miles to get to the town and back again in the space that this story was told. It could be that this was the name for the area. One of the translations says that the man went into Decapolis, the ten towns area, and told his story, not just that he went back to his own town. So anyway, these town people have heard about this and they want to make sure that Jesus goes back to the other side of the lake because they need those pigs for a livelihood. Possibly. In Mark's Gospel, that's kind of implied. And what do they find? This madman who's been driven out of the town by demons and probably driven out of the town by the townspeople, they found this man who had no clothes on. They found this man who'd been in chains and scratched to death. They found this man who'd not been in his right mind. And what's he doing? 
be sitting at Jesus' feet. He's in the right place to be a disciple. (laughs) He's sitting at Jesus' feet. Where do you sit when everything's going wrong? Or do you do what I often do, which is run around like a headless chicken, if you'll forgive the analogy in these sensitive times. He's sitting at Jesus' feet. And what else do we find out? We found out that he, having been dressed, in our translation it just says he was dressed, but having been dressed, he has a new state of being. It's coming across in the fact that he's dressed. And being in his right mind, our translation just says in his right mind, being in his right mind is the word that's being translated here. Being. What's your state of being at the moment? How are you, ontologically speaking? How are you in yourself? Where are you? What are you being? Are you being a disciple? Facing these difficult challenges of following Jesus and learning to perform under pressure even when you'd rather be singing a different song or are you humming the same tune as everybody else around you and nobody's quite hearing clearly enough that you too are a disciple. This is a challenging passage. This man went out and told his story. The people who heard his story heard of a man transformed. St. Paul wrote his first letter, probably the first thing that was ever written down that is now in our New Testament, to the Thessalonians, reminding them of the change that had happened, how they'd changed from idol worshippers to people who were full of love and joy and hope, how they changed from idol worshippers to people who could be addressed at the start of the letter in confidence, speaking in the name of the Father and of the Son and then mentioning the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives later. Disciples are a people who are being changed because they're learning to perform under pressure, under the challenge of this world, which is a very different culture. Disciples are being re-socialized into the culture of God. How are we doing with that? Amen.